0: Ears Wide Open A new series of podcasts provided by Anima Eterna Brugge Reenacting Schumann Part 2 An Authentic Romantic Style In the previous episode we followed Anima Etana experimenting a new process of research and rehearsal in historical music, early recording informed performance, that is, by carefully listening to and studying recordings of the beginning of twentieth century, from artists that were connected to the Romantic era, trying to reenact the authentic Romantic playing style that was expected from the Romantic composers. Today, with Kai Cup and Miller Zeiler, co-artistic directors of this project, we are diving deeper into the main elements of this style, trying to understand why those astonishing features that sounds, to our ears of today, like technical failures, were the most important and essential part of the professional interpreter's heart. Let's ask first to Kai Köpp what were the most important characteristics of this romantic playing style?
1: Yes, this is uh, of course a huge uh, um, question, but I think it can be, it c- comes down to the notion of flexibility, if you want to describe it in technical ways. So there's flexibility of tempo, flexibility of rhythm, and yes, flexibility of intonation as well. So many things that evade notation, things that you cannot possibly write down in the score because uh, it would be too complicated to write down the flexibility of all of these parameters. In this recording
0: of Dvorak's American quartet, played by the Bohemian quartet, whose first violin was the son-in-law of the composer, we clearly hear this flexibility that sometimes gives the impression that musicians are not precisely together, nor in tune.
1: So the the striking element is when you listen to these recordings that it sounds very different from what's notated in the score. So we have been asking the question how do you get to this kind of result? Is it just inspiration, intuition, spontaneity? And then we found out that musicians, professional musicians were actually trained to deviate from the score, to do something that's Um, more professional than just playing the score. And they even had some jargon words for that. They were trained to look at performance on two different levels. One level was called the correct performance. That was for amateurs and for beginners. And that was uh, a faithful translation of what's written in the score. But as soon as you become a professional um, performer, the education at the conservatories was suggesting that you look for beautiful performance, what's called beautiful performance. And that's, by definition, something that's on top of what's written in the score. So that's all the flexibility that you bring in in these parameters. Yeah, and I think um, the most important way of looking at what's what they considered beautiful was to not play just the superficial notation, but, in the words of the 19th century um, to look for the soul of music or to revive the intentions of the composer that's how they were talking about beautiful performance
0: this is actually the exact opposite of what we expect today from musicians following the score as closest as possible only the score just the score and nothing but the score
1: there is a researcher in cambridge named uh, nicholas cook who was looking Into performance styles of nowadays who found um, a good term for what we're doing today in modern performance practices. He calls this the page-to-stage approach so that you hear what's on the page and this is pretty much the correct performance I was referring to earlier. And this is very much in contrast to the education of looking for the beautiful performance and how musicians would be enabled to play beautifully by not just looking at the surface of the composition and not even by reading between the lines. It goes much further um, because musicians in the time were still expected to compose and not only to perform. So they were naturally taking a perspective of a composer who would be able to change things radically and um, this change of perspective was also the starting point for finding a beautiful performance by putting themselves on eye level with the composer and by working themselves up to the differentiation and the thoughts and the concepts of a composition it was possible to make decisions and even alter things as if they composed the music themselves. When you, for example, read instructions on how to compose music, and that was expected from every musician, it was part of the performance education up until the 1860s and 70s, maybe, um, when it, there was the divide between the only performers and only composers, people were expected to look at the music from the composer's perspective as um, as a standard kind of concept. So what would the composer have changed If the character would be different. And therefore, one of the concepts for an educational professional musician was to look routinely at the character, the emotion, and the situation of a given score, because that was um, the trias of decisions that a composer needed to make. So if you get into this habit of checking routinely, character, emotion, and situation, every melody, every motive becomes characteristic because it will give answers to all three aspects. Like take Freude Schöner Götterfunken, uh, the uh, chorus of the finale of the Ninth Symphony. This is a very idealistic text with um, a hymn setting. (laughs) of uh, the idealistic um, text it cannot be um, presented in any other way as by a group of people who all agree about their ideals. Whereas when you have an individual um, opera aria it expresses the emotions of an individual in a, a specific situation. You can never express this with a choir. So situation, character and emotion are categories that help you identify the exact character of the music and that's why in all the educational instructions the teachers start by asking for the character of the music and all the decisions derive from this knowledge and this is what i uh, coined as reverse co-composition it's uh, it's like i took the term reverse engineering to find out how things work and if you want to find out how music works and how the music um, is perceived, or the, the composed the way you find it on on this in the score. Um, you put yourself in the position of how the composer made a decision to give specific information on character, emotion, and situation, and therefore, by reversing the process of composing, you get into the position that you can understand the decisions that a composer made, something that I would call um, intentions. Although I do know that there is a big philosophical discussion about intention nowadays, but I think it's not the innermost feelings and private feelings um, that a composer had. It's something that a composer intended to translate and transmit to audiences via the score by imagining very vividly the character, the emotion, and the situation of something that the composer wanted to put into music. And this can be reversed in a very straightforward way. It's not an over-interpretation. It's just looking from a different perspective. And therefore, it's, um, we avoid over-interpretation or putting something on top of, um, of the score that's not inside. Really,
0: Take this recording of Mahler's Fourth Symphony conducted by the famous Wilhelm Mengelberg, who closely worked with the composer in the beginning of the 20th century, and listened to the very unusual way. To our ears, at last, he constantly changes the tempo, getting slower or faster, sometimes in such a few bars.
1: you listen to the recordings you find that the tempo is changing much unexpectedly and in an almost exaggerated way like Midori said before and these changes could be made spontaneously or uh, intuitively and we want to understand how our colleagues back then came to the decision to make these drastic changes and um, this is where instructions come in when students uh, of famous musicians later on wrote about their study years or maybe were teaching other students about their ideals, it became very evident that um, as a stereotype, a real standard of education, um, musicians were looking for moments of calmness. And... Contrasting that to moments of constant acceleration, sometimes maybe almost unnoticeable acceleration, but something that they did on purpose, and um, the fact that they wrote about that um, when they were reflecting their own education helps us to find the jargon words that r- produced the results that we hear. So this is the pair of words like ruhig and vorwärts, forward, um, that was repeatedly explained by different musicians. So we know it's not just one school, but uh, it was some kind of a stereotype in preparing a performance that they were actively looking for musical passages that were very calm and slowing down, therefore, and other passages that were actively accelerating and going forward, which is a key to the tempo flexibility that we hear as a result. But are those
0: characters not indicated in a way or another in the score?
1: Well, a good composer would probably try to indicate those moments through the score. And uh, there are many indications where the character calms down or where the pulse of the music is slowing down um, that professional musicians can detect. And Musicians have always detected this, even my modern colleagues. But the way you treat this change of character is very different. In modern education, I was always told in my chamber music classes, don't rush and um, be precisely together. And it took so much time to uh, maintain that or produce this kind of precision and this kind of steadiness that it came as a surprise to find out that the instructions in earlier times meant to not prevent the natural desire to, to go forward when the music is exciting or to change the tempo really when the music is calming down. So in a way, um, it is. Um, many of the musicians I work with explain to me how relieved they are to actually now be allowed to go forward, to give in to their desire to be expressive, or to slow down and be expressive in slow tempo. So I see that there is some, kind of, um, uh, some kind of a cure of some principles of the early 20th century that are just not our own anymore.
2: Actually, the whole topic is similar in any era because um, coming from old music, ancient music like Baroque, you have the same situation that you have You face piece of music, piece of paper with written notes, with written music. And as a a musician, as a person who gives life to these written notes, you, you give your body to use the instrument, you give your personality, your spirit, your ideas, your imagination and all that to... Um, to give a certain printing on that, what you read, right? On top of that, we are supposed to actually know what was not written in the music. So there was um, information given, which we have to decode, we have to decipher, for instance, to also in Baroque era, to, to know on which places we should use ornaments and on which we should not use ornaments, in which places we can do tempo flexibility and, and go forward or we hold back. So this is actually something we we use very much already in the Baroque era. So we have to not just read the music, what we are told in university, and play it as rhythmical, as steady, as um, much, in tune as possible, but we have to play what's on top of that. And for the romantic music, everything is like that, but the the codes change a little bit. So the way of doing the um, uh, fingerings, the rubati, the yeah, the, the audible slides between intervals. This is. Um, The language itself is changing a little bit, but the purpose, the necessity is still there. It hasn't changed.
1: Yeah, of course, it's very tempting to take written symbols or written um, indications and just change the meaning and to use this as a recipe to play romantic music. This is um, difficult because most of the symbols... Gain their meaning from the context. So, if you accept that the composer expected the musician to ask for the character first, then all the indications like extra staccato signs, or extra hairpins, or extra um, uh, accentuation signs, they are related to expecting that. The musician knows the character. And the character is further specified by these additional indications. But if you now just take some of the indications and change the uh, information just just a little bit, it's like the pick-and-choose concept that I was criticizing earlier. It's just a fraction of the entire thing. Although there are some striking changes of information like crescendo, would not only um, refer to the parameter of volume, but also to the energy with which the music goes forward. So in effect, crescendo is very often aligned with going forward or accelerating slightly. But the amount of acceleration is always related to the context and to the character of the context. So even that change of information cannot live without the character, or with, cannot live without knowing about the character.
0: Another key element is the widespread use of portamento, a way of linking notes together. Before listening to the great tenor Enrico Caruso using many kinds of portamenti while singing Endel's Ombra Maifu, let's have some explanations.
2: Well, we, all of us have... Um, certain portamento in everyday life for expressing disappointment for instance it's always oh so you go down with a, with your voice or or if you if you relax also ah you have these you have these really um, specific sounds and in vocal music where you connect sounds to words you would use them most naturally to connect um, an interval of relaxation in a word, um, which which has a meaning of relaxation, or the opposite to to emphasize uh, joy. You go up and, or or you you show some movement. So it's actually always um, attached to expression of. Why you put two notes after each other? Yes, so every time you produce an interval with two notes, there is a purpose. It might it might be like you get stuck with something. Yeah, this is a purpose. You play the same note a few times, or if you if you show your surprise, you 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 just um, fill. The gap between two notes with emotion.
1: Yes, so portamento di voce is a very old term for singing styles. And of course, over the centuries, it has been filled with many different meanings. But basically, it is a description of what the voice lips of everyone's voice does naturally. So it's something that every person somehow intuitively knows that if you have a change of pitch, that... Um, your voice lips cannot just change stepwise. There is something in between that uh, balances these two pitches. So um, this is something that has always been considered the characteristic of vocality, that the, the pitches have something in between, some co- a connection between um, the pitches. And um, to reach one note from another, in a beautiful way, was the task of a professional voice and was called portamento di di voce. Portamento di voce is the carrying of the sound. And then, uh, of course, if a singer is able to do that very beautifully, uh, together with language, it can be done in many different ways. Portamento um, is like a whole world of expressivity. Um, So that... Um, instrumentalists were of course attracted to imitate beautiful singing and they needed to somehow translate what they heard with the natural voice lips to their instruments and string instruments um, as well as trombones and um, other instruments have the possibility to imitate the flexibility of the voice lips in a very close way. So they have developed over the centuries a lot of techniques that imitate Just the physicality of the voice. Well, I'm always asked, of course, why this appealing style of performing music has vanished and when it has vanished, because um, many people find it very attractive to listen to this kind of music because it's so natural and connecting. Um, And as a researcher, of course, I've been trying to find out where the change really happened. And it happened gradually, but the motivation was to abandon the individuality of the performer or to get rid of maybe the performer's influence of music. In the early 20th century, when people were trying to find music that fits the new millennium, um, after the found the siècle depression and um, kind of um, melancholic outlook on the new century people were we were willing to abandon things that for generations had been at the center of musical performance which was the performer who communicates with audiences in in a, some kind of a human way and the concept was um, to have a dehumanized objective music and this is like people like Stravinsky uh, tried to elim- eliminate the performer or to or to Um, eliminate expressivity with uh, Sacre du Ponton, for example, um, creating a huge scandal by denying emotional communication. And then he found a way of abandoning uh, the creative composer altogether by writing Pulcinella, which is just um, an arrangement of pre-existing music like a collage. Um, So they were really trying to eliminate both the individuality of the performer as well as the Um, as uh, uh, the composer or uh, take in Germany Neue Sachlichkeit with Hindemith and Honegger and um, other composers. That was the avant-garde desire also motivated by the emotional and human disaster of the First World War um, that people were willing and ready to get rid of emotional communication. And uh, this is a situation that created modernism for the people in the first half of the 20th century. And all the traditional um, musicians and artists um, who survived this change would finally adopt it after the Second World War, where all um, the ideals that were left over or the, the, um, the small remainders of emotional communication was finally then um, um, sent back to history and people had really adopted this kind of concept that the, the score was the authority and the page-to-stage concept would be the true performance style of the 20th century.
2: This is the liberty I, I really like about being a musician, that you don't just um, repeat what has been said already but that you are allowed, and most welcome, to to give your own opinion about it. And to actually take yourself serious enough to do so. And therefore I could imagine, but this is a very personal view, that also what Kai just talked about, that um, objectivity, the abandoning the personal approach, might be a counter-movement to psychoanalysis mm. also that because you then you went so much into yourself and into the depth of your soul that um, maybe people just didn't want to do that. They wanted to keep up to some, some surface and just to, to work, to keep on going and to not have a look in, inside.
0: be continued. In the next episode we will ask musicians their feeling about this work in progress.